Andrea Ritchie is very good at seeing what's not there. As a lawyer focused on police misconduct, she's devoted her life to shining a light on the problems that police departments want to sweep under the rug. As a black, lesbian woman, Andrea Ritchie has had issues of police violence, sexism, and racism on her radar long before they became national media talking points. She's the co-author with Kimberly Williams Crenshaw of the report Say Her Name, Resisting Police Brutality Against Black Women, and also the co-author of the book Queer Injustice, The Criminalization of LGBT People in the United States. Her newest book is just as much of a doozy. It's called Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color, and it documents the roots of today's police violence all the way from Ferguson back to the colonial-era genocide of Native Americans. It's a tough read. Every page documents violence, including many, many cases and incidents that never got any attention or anything approaching justice. In charting the patterns of racism and violence, the book is a crucial resource that I think will resonate for a long, long time. If I was an American history teacher, I would assign Invisible No More to my class in about one second. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me, Andrea. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me and for and to Bitch Magazine for featuring the book. So in your book, you talk about a couple disturbing interactions that you had with police officers as a teenager. Um, for example, in one, you recount going up to a police officer on the street to report that a group of men were harassing and catcalling you, only to have that police officer also like start making nasty comments about your body. So I'm wondering, what do you remember thinking about the police when you were a teenager? Like, what did you learn from your community and your own experiences and from pop culture about the police? No, it's interesting. I don't remember um, learning much about the police there. I grew up in a community uh, where I was privileged, where there were not that many police officers. So um, it was a small town outside of Montreal. And um, I just don't actually remember very many interactions with police and we didn't talk about them at home. So I, I think that I was privileged in that respect and that I didn't have to learn those lessons very early on. And then I think, uh, you know, I lived in other countries, um, one of which was uh, Haiti as a young person. And there I was very clear and under a dictatorship. So I was very clear that the police there were dangerous um, and uh, certainly not people that you went to or sought out in any way, shape or form um, because they were serving the interests of a dictator and were, were very repressive. So I hadn't really thought about them uh, much. And, and in the, and as I point out in the book, you know, the encounters I had with them as a teen made it clear to me that they were not uh, people that, could, could or would help me and, in fact, were as likely to be harmful to me as anyone else uh, when I was in a vulnerable situation. So, so you wound up becoming a lawyer, and I'm interested about what what motivated that, what motivated you to become a lawyer, because I know a lot of people go into law school with big plans to change the world and then become utterly disillusioned and embittered by the whole system. <laughs> well, I resisted being a lawyer for a long time. People have been telling me um, throughout my you know, college life and early 20s that I would be suited to the position, which I didn't exactly take as a compliment and um, sort of resisted uh, for a long time because, you know, there's a lot of sort of stereotypes about lawyers. And I also had a sense that that being a lawyer is being 
part of the system and is about upholding the system um, that is built on systemic and structural inequality and that that's maintained through law and not feeling very confident that you could then use, as you know, Audre Lorde um, cautions us against, the master's tool to dismantle the master's house. And so I resisted for a long time and realized as an activist that um, I had, was sort of coming up against consistent kind of structural you know, um, walls and, uh, you know, one was economic and the other was legal. And seeing as I'm not very good at math um, and didn't really have a strong understanding of economics, um, I felt like getting a better understanding of legal structures would um, serve the activism that I was interested in doing. Um, and I had during that time become a paralegal and had worked on workers' comp cases and just found that I also, that it was, that people, people were telling me it was true, that I had some skills and a collection of experiences that actually made me well suited to engaging in, in research and advocacy and, um, communications in terms of the ways that, um, lawyers, that those are the basic skills of lawyering. So, um, I went to law school, but I uh, chose to go to Howard University School of Law because it felt important to me to go to a law school where there there would be a healthy critique of the law as a tool of maintaining structural oppression as opposed to an illusion that it was a race neutral you know instrument of justice. The heart of your book is about recognizing police violence against black women, and there's a sentence from the introduction that I'm hoping you can read. Could you just read that? Sure. Black women, long the backbone of efforts to resist state violence, are insisting that we will no longer only play the role of a grieved mother, girlfriend, partner, sister, daughter, or invisible organizer, and demanding recognition that we, too, are targets of police violence. And so much, I like that line because so much of your book is about exactly that, like how the violence against black women from the era of slavery to now is often invisible in our history. It's like just a footnote in a historical discussion. So I'm wondering how you feel that invisibility shapes the way that Americans see both the police and see our own history. I think there just is a, a real willful amnesia in the United States um, and in Canada as well. And I really highly commend to your readers um, a book that's coming out this August called Policing Black Lives, which um, uh, sort of chronicles a similar historical trajectory in Canada, but also looks at the unique um, circumstances that shaped that country uh, and, and the parallels as well. It's by Robin Maynard. Um, but it, in both places, the, there is a real willful historic amnesia in terms of the amount of violence and the forms and shapes of violence that uh, can that were required and deployed in order to establish the United States as a nation state, as a settler nation state, um, and to maintain that. And I think, you know, people saw the violence at Standing Rock last summer and were horrified by it. And at the same time, struggled to see that this was, this is just the latest sort of manifestation of a long thread of settler colonial violence. And when they saw violence on the front lines against women, indigenous women protecting their land from elders to, to pregnant women to 14-year-old girls, um, that too is part of a of a continuous thread through United States history that that we certainly don't learn about in school. I didn't learn about in school in Canada. And to the extent that we 
tend to talk about that historical violence. It's very generic. It's referred to as Indian Wars, um, but we don't talk about um, the specificities of it and the gender-specific specificities of it and the continuing impacts of it um, in present-day um United States. And the same is very much true around slavery and the continuing impacts of slavery um, and what we call under the law the badges and incidents of slavery uh, that continue to this day. And um, and how the, the kinds of sexual violence that black women experienced throughout uh, kidnapping from Africa, the Middle Passage, uh, and throughout chattel slavery and beyond in the United States are continued to be perpetrated by the police and other state actors, immigration authorities, and so on uh, to the present day. And they're part, again, of a continuous thread of gendered state violence that um, is not something that is prominently featured when we have discussions, even in you know Black History Month or when we're talking about um, you know the foundation of America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that makes it seem like each incident of police violence, aggression against protesters or assault of somebody comes out of the blue. Like that for I think for a long time, um, at least like white and middle class white Americans have been seeing like, you know, police acts of police brutality as being like, oh, well, this one thing happened. Oh, so there one thing happened. So there one thing happened. And in recent years, activists have done really great work around Black Lives Matter and say her name to draw the pattern between those those incidences and say, hey, actually, this isn't just like a one-off incident. This is a repeating systemic pattern in our history. And that feels like really what, what your book is shooting for, too, is to say, you know, this isn't what's invisible here is the system that creates these incidents that pop up in our media and capture attention for a little bit. But what we don't see is our history and our, the whole systems behind this. Absolutely. It felt like it was really important to do that, particularly around instances of police violence against black women and women of color and indigenous women. Um, because I do and feel like Sandra Bland's case and you know, Sandra Bland is very much in my mind today. It's the second anniversary of her death uh, in Walla County jail. It felt important to place that story in context and to, to really emphasize that Sandra's case was not an anomaly and that honoring her memory um, means seeing the systemic patterns that she herself pointed out in, in her Facebook posts and her Sandy Speaks Facebook series of police violence in the U.S. and particularly that her experience is part of a larger pattern of police violence against black women in the United States. Yeah, your book spans so many different um, areas of police violence and so much history here. But the case that keeps coming up again is Sandra Bland's. You bring it up several times in the book. And for people that don't remember, Sandra Bland, was an African-American woman who was driving across Texas on her way to start a new job. A state trooper pulled her over for like um, failing to signal while changing lanes. And she was smoking a cigarette at the time. He asked her to put the cigarette out. And she said, why do I have to put a cigarette out when I'm in my own car? He ordered her to get out of the car. And when she said no, the officer told her she was under arrest. And then he pulled a taser out and threatened to light her up if she didn't get out of the car. And she was arrested and three days later died in jail. And her death was ruled a suicide. Um, And so this is just, this is one story, Andrea, but like, how do you feel like Sandra Bland's one story shows the the bigger patterns that you're pointing to in violence against women of color and black women specifically? Like, how is Sandra Bland's story 
part of a much bigger picture in so many ways. I mean, I, I definitely woke up thinking about Sandra this morning because um, obviously it's the second anniversary of her death, but also because she is so present throughout the book. And, and I felt like, um, you know, her honoring her memory was, was a thread that, that felt important throughout the book and in each of the sections. So, um, talking about black women's experiences of racial profiling in, in traffic stops and pedestrian stops, um, and of, of the kinds of, um, pretextual enforcement of minor offenses that, um, is called driving while black, uh, that black women experience. And, uh, so talking about her case offered an opportunity to talk about how that is a systemic issue that for instance, in 2013, the year before, uh, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, black women were experienced the greatest numbers of traffic stops in Ferguson than any other group, including black men. So black women are very much targets of driving while black. Also, to add to your description of the of the stop, she pulled over because she saw flashing lights in her rearview mirror and was trying to get out of the way of the police officers. So she was actually following traffic laws, which is to get out of the way of emergency vehicles as quickly as possible and pull over and to forget to use your traffic signal in that particular instance is particularly understandable and something that all of us do on a daily basis if we drive. And um, I think that was what also felt so... um, resonant for so many black women, um, because it could have been any of us. And so, um, it felt important to highlight that. And then again, to sort of highlight the, the physical violence that is threatened and enacted anytime black women insist on being treated with dignity, ask questions, do anything that deviates from, um, kind of the role, the only allowable role for black women in U.S. society, which is to be a submissive, caretaking mammy who doesn't ask questions and who does whatever white people tell her to do. And so any deviation from that, um, as in the case, that's just even it's perceived, even if you're just asking a question, why do I have to put out my cigarette, um, is, is violently punished. And that's what happened in Sandra's case. Your book talks about the stories of so many women who have experienced violence at the hands of the police. I think there's dozens of stories in here, if not over a hundred. Um, one story I hadn't heard before was the story of Sheree Williams. And it really illustrates how many women of color cannot trust the police to keep them safe. I was wondering, could you tell us this story? I think it's not as well known as Sandra Bland's. And then explain what, what her story reveals to you. Yeah, I first heard Sheree Williams' story actually from Robin Kelly, um, the author of Freedom Dreams and a professor at UCLA. Um, at a black feminism conference in 2000. And I remember thinking exactly the same thing, which is how come I haven't heard this story? And that was actually the context in which Robin raised it because 1999, um, the year preceding the conference was the year that Amadou Diallo was shot and, and that sparked national outrage and protests. In fact, I was in law school at the time and have a distinct memory of being part of a huge march around the DOJ um, in response to Amadou Diallo's shooting and, and being part of many, many protests and actions around that shooting. And um, so it was a year in which, um, and it sort of bookended uh, an almost decade between Rodney King's case and Amadou Diallo's case of just increasing and heightening activism around uh, systemic police brutality against black people in the United States. And what Robin Kelly pointed out was, uh, meanwhile, no one's talking about this story of this person, Sheree Williams, who 
um, experienced a horrific incident of police violence when she called for help, and and that that is a manifestation of how the movement um, to challenge police brutality is leaving black women behind. And so I will forever be indebted to Robin Kelly for raising that story, making that point, because uh, Sheree's story is very um, instructive in many respects. So Sheree Williams had experienced physical violence at the hands of her uh, male partner in 1999. And so she called the New York City Police Department for assistance. And when they showed up at her house, they refused to even get out of their car. And so Sheree was outraged by this um, and asked for their names and badge numbers. And they responded by grabbing her, um, shoving her into the car, handcuffing her, um, and then driving her to a deserted lot. And on the way, she was, of course, terrified and could understand why this would happen when she called for assistance because she was being beaten. And um, I think tried to get a hand out of the handcuffs and figure out how to get out of the situation. And they pepper sprayed her in the face. Um, And when they got her to the vacant lot, they beat her within an inch of her life and broke her jaw. It had to be wired shut. They broke her spleen, which I don't even know how one does that, um, and left her there for dead, basically, and with a warning saying, you know, if if we see you again, um, we'll kill you. And she, and what what is, um, I mean, it's a horrifying story. And then what's even more profoundly, telling about this story is that Sheree then testified about what happened to her um, before a New York City Council hearing on domestic violence. And what's telling is that her story did not come up as part of the national dialogue around police brutality that Amadou Diallo's case uh, sponsored in the same year or sparked in the same year, um, nor did it become central to conversations about violence against women and police responses to domestic violence even though she raised it in that context. And so for, as I say in the book, for a long time, Sheree's story really stuck with me and I would open every presentation I made with it to point out that black women experience police violence, horrible physical police violence, and we don't talk about it, um, but also that it happens alarmingly frequently in the context of calls for help. One of the forwards of your book is written by none other than scholar and activist Angela Davis. Um, And she lays out what your work is all about, about recognizing the systems that lead to a culture of police violence. And she writes in the foreword, it is not only black women and women of color who are invisible no more, but also the immensity and complexity of the problem of rooting out the nexus of racist violence. And so this is a this is a complicated question. But in talking about police reform, we tend to be looking for swift and practical solutions like we want new training or body cameras. And that's in part because like we're, we're desperate. People are dying and the situation is very bad. And police reform advocates want to be able to point to a list of ideas and say, do this immediately. It'll help solve the problem. But like, how do you think we can help get to the root of the problems here? Like, what can we actually do to change this complicated and massively terrible relationship between civilians and the police that you think will actually help us become a more equal and better country? <laughs> it's a million dollar question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Sorry. That's what's going through my mind. It's like, it's like, it's just so, it's so bad and it's so complicated. And there's so many um, strains and roots of this. What kind of work have you seen that you're like, oh, this is actually helping make change? 
Well, the first thing I want to say is just to really say how incredibly honored and moved and um, deeply humbled I was by um, Dr. Davis's um, foreword to the book and also how much her work shaped um, my own evolving understanding and actually is the reason that book is sitting in your hands today. Because the thing that has been most helpful to me in answering the question that you posed Um, I learned from Insight, um, which is an organization um, that has consistently also shaped my consciousness and and politics around these issues deeply, where the question, uh, it was about what question we asked, right? It wasn't about how to help police make us safer. It was about what will make black women and women of color safer. And I think those are the questions we have to ask ourselves. And unfortunately, I don't think, as you say, there's any easy answers. I think it requires us to radically reimagine what safety means and how we achieve it. And what I feel like kind of my lane in that conversation has been, has been demonstrating how current approaches are not achieving that goal, how current approaches did not achieve that goal for Sheree Williams, how they didn't achieve that goal for Charlena Lyles, how they haven't achieved that goal for so many women whose stories are told in the book, and so many transgender and gender non-conforming people whose stories are told in the book, and so many whose stories aren't told in the book and and may never be told. And that, that again, requires us to think more broadly, more deeply, um, and and go beyond reforming police practices to really thinking about what alternate institutions, structures, and um, ways of being we need to envision and practice and build and make mistakes and then build again and then scale up in order to actually achieve safety um, beyond police. That was Andrea Ritchie. Her book, Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color, comes out from Beacon Press this summer.